love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. With the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Consort Camilla quickly approaching on the 6th of May 2023, there has been a lot in the news about the British crown jewels. Select pieces are being quietly removed from display at the Tower of London to be cleaned and refurbished to fit the new king and queen. So let's learn all about the mind-bogglingly valuable and historically invaluable collection of crowns, scepters, orbs, rings, and other precious objects, which will soon be appearing on screens across the world. The Crown Jewels, A Journey Through History The crown, the very symbol of power, wealth, majesty, and royalty. It is a shining golden signal to the medieval mud-caked peasantry that here is a person who is above them and blessed from above. In the Middle Ages, a mere mortal man was seen to mystically transform into a mighty monarch by having a crown placed upon his head. You can't be a king without the bling. Kings, queens, and emperors around the world have used crowns and also scepters, orbs, robes, and other gold, silver, and bejeweled pieces of regalia as a central part of their coronation ceremonies for centuries. Today, the handful of remaining monarchies in Europe have consigned their crown jewels to museums and have moved to more modest, secular swearing-in ceremonies. But in Britain, the myth and majesty of monarchy is still very much in practice. The diamond-encrusted imperial state crown is paraded out each year when the monarch opens parliament, and the regalia will be a central part of the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Consort Camilla. Let's take a look at the 1,500-year history of the British crown jewels. They have been washed away in the sea, stolen from a grave, sold off to pay princely debts, melted down to make coins, and pilfered from countries across the globe to end up on the heads of Britain's kings and queens. Crowns, diadems, and other headdresses have been used around the world since ancient times as a symbol of the power and dignity of rulers. In early Christian Europe, a new king was proclaimed when a religious official placed a crown upon his head in a coronation ceremony. The crown represented a halo and the monarch's divine right to rule. In 597, Pope Gregory I sent a monk, St. Augustine, to Britain to convert the pagans to Christianity. Augustine became the first Archbishop of Canterbury, and he introduced the coronation ceremony to England. 
Initially, new kings had a helmet rather than a crown placed upon their head. This was fitting as war was how medieval kings won and kept their power. The king would also be anointed with holy oil in a church, demonstrating their God-given right to rule. When the king died, his coronation regalia was buried with him, and a new set was made for his successor. Back on the continent, on Christmas Day in the year 800, Charlemagne was crowned Emperor of the Romans, when Pope Leo III placed a golden crown upon his head. From then on, a golden crown became all the rage for rulers across Europe. In 924, Ethelstan was the first king to unite all of England under his rule. He was also the first English king depicted wearing a golden crown in this illuminated manuscript from Bede's Life of St. Cuthbert. In 973, his nephew, Edgar the Peaceful, was the first English king to have a coronation with an actual crown. He also introduced the scepter, a symbol of power dating back to ancient Egypt, which in Christianity was derived from the shepherd's crook carried by bishops, and represents the monarch's religious leadership. Edgar's wife, Elftherith, was the first queen of England to be crowned in an official coronation so a crown for the queen consort also became part of the royal regalia. King Edward the Confessor is depicted with a crown and scepter in the first scene of the Bayou Tapestry. He died in 1066 without an heir, opening the door for William the Conqueror and the Norman invasion. King William used the symbolism of the crown to cement his authority over his new subjects, and was sure to wear it when he visited England for the religious festivals of Easter, Whitsun, and Christmas. William and his descendants likely continued the tradition of being buried with their crowns, while some regalia was passed down and some made new for each new king. In 1216, King John was at war with his own people. After taxing them to starvation to enrich himself, he was furious at having been forced to sign the Magna Carta, the first constitution which limited his power and gave rights to his barons. While on the march to smash his people into submission, John took a shortcut and led his army across an estuary known as the Wash. He made a fatal miscalculation with the tides. While his men were marching across the narrow strip of dry land, the water suddenly rose and they were trapped. Many soldiers, horses, and carts filled with the king's ill-gotten gains were washed out to sea or swallowed up in quicksand and tidal whirlpools. Much of King John's wealth remains at the bottom of the North Sea, including his crown jewels. As no inventory of King John's possessions exist, it is unclear exactly what was included in the crown jewels he lost. But it was enough to send the king into a deep depression. He drowned his sorrows in the kegs of a nearby abbey. The monk's brew gave him dysentery, and he died. John's son, Henry III, was now king, but he needed a new crown. And with all his family wealth now at the bottom of the North Sea, he couldn't afford to have a fresh crown forged. So Henry looked to the past. 
King Edward the Confessor had recently been canonized as a saint, and thus any objects connected with him were transformed into powerful holy relics. In order to capitalize on this golden opportunity, the monks at Edward's burial place of Westminster Abbey claimed that the royal saint had asked them to look after his crown and regalia in perpetuity, and that they were to be used in the coronations of all future kings. Strangely, no one thought to mention this bequest for 250 years. The monks produced a letter supposedly from St. Edward, as well as a gold wirework crown set with small stones and decorated with filigree and cloisonné enamel and two little bells. There was another smaller crown of state for the king to wear at important events, a crown for the queen consort, and scepter, two rods, rings, an onyx chalice for communion, and several other holy vestments. These objects were almost certainly stolen from King Edward's grave. But the monk's claim coincided perfectly with King Henry's need for a crown. So Edward's burial loot became the first known set of hereditary coronation regalia in Europe. It was used in the coronation of England's medieval kings for hundreds of years, thus cementing the legacy and holy supremacy of these precious objects. But as the Holy Crown was not permitted to be taken out of Westminster Abbey, kings had other crowns made to wear on holidays, state occasions, and in battle. And they saved St. Edward's crown only for coronations. Up to this point, kings were not considered to have begun their reign until the moment the crown was placed upon their head by the Archbishop of Canterbury. But when Henry III died, his son and heir, now King Edward I, named in honor of the saint, was away on crusade and wasn't able to make it back to England for another two years. So he was proclaimed King of England in Sicily upon learning of his father's death. From then on, the coronation remained an important symbol, but a new monarch's ascension is marked from the moment of their predecessor's death. Once King Edward made it back to Britain, he set about conquering both Wales and Scotland. He claimed their royal's crown jewels and added them to his own. The crown supposedly owned by the legendary King Arthur was pilfered from Wales, and the mystical Stone of Schoon was stolen from Scotland and placed in the English coronation chair. While some kings added to the treasure trove, others chipped away at it to pay off their debts. Edward II pawned his great crown in Flanders. Edward III gave three crowns to the Bishop of London and the Earl of Arndell as security for a £10,000 loan, about £12.6 million today. Sometimes these precious objects were temporarily lent back to the monarch to be used in coronations or other state occasions, and then taken back after the ceremony. In the 1300s, after a series of attempted and successful thefts in Westminster Abbey, the crown jewels were moved to the White Tower in the Tower of London for safekeeping. The collection is housed there to this day. In 1399, King Richard II was forced to abdicate and hand St. Edward's crown to his cousin, Henry IV. 
Richard said, I present to you this crown, and all the rights dependent on it. Henry IV added two arches topped with a mound and cross to St. Edward's crown, thus transforming it from a royal crown to an imperial crown. The additions signify that the wearer is an emperor in his own domain, subservient to no one but God, rather than a lesser king who owes fealty to a more powerful ruler, like the kings in the Holy Roman Empire. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In 1485, at the Battle of Bosworth Field, King Richard III received a fatal head wound. According to legend, his crown was found under a bush and placed on the head of his victor, the new King of England, Henry VII. If true, this crown would not have been St. Edward's, but a battle crown or decorated helmet. Henry's genealogical claim to the throne was rather dubious, so he and his descendants worked hard to impress their majesty and authority upon their subjects. The Tudors took to wearing royal crowns on even more occasions, including Christmas, Epiphany, Easter, Whitsum, All Saints' Day, the Feast of St. Edward, and at the annual state opening of Parliament. In 1509, Henry VIII added a new object to the regalia, the orb representing the monarch's authority over the Christian world. In 1603, the first Stuart king, James I, added three swords representing the monarch's power in the administration of justice. The sword of spiritual justice, the sword of temporal justice, and the blunt sword of mercy he enshrined the heredity of the crown jewels into English law, but his son, Charles I, did not agree. He was broke, and one of his first acts on the throne was to pack up 41 masterpieces from the jewel house onto a ship headed for Amsterdam, the hub of Europe's jewel trade. These works of art include the Three Brothers, three rectangular red spinels arranged around a central diamond with pearl accents, and the Mirror of Great Britain, four pale diamonds and a red ruby arranged in a diamond pattern. These treasures were expected to enrich the king by 300,000 pounds, but they fetched only 70,000 pounds. The masterpieces have not been seen since and are now considered lost. King Charles was eager to get his hands on more money, so he worked out schemes to tax his people without the consent of Parliament. 
Parliament was naturally furious, and in 1642, civil war broke out between the king's supporters, called the Cavaliers, and the parliamentarians, known as the Roundheads. Queen Henrietta Maria traveled to the continent to secure loans for her husband's army. But when it was discovered that she had used even more of the crown jewels as collateral, the English were outraged. Parliament decreed that from then on, the crown jewels were owned by the crown and were only lent to the individual monarch. King Charles lost the Civil War and his head in 1649. England was taken over by General Oliver Cromwell, who utterly destroyed the crown jewel collection, which he called symbolic of the detestable rule of kings, and monuments of superstition and idolatry. The gemstones were removed and sold to pay war debts, and the gold and silver was melted down to mint coins for the new republic, which were stamped with Cromwell's face warts and all. So common people walking the streets of London in the 1650s were buying pints of beer with tiny pieces of St. Edward's crown and the other vestments of ancient kingship. Cromwell declined to be declared king, preferring the title Lord Protector. But he was a king in all but name, and a very strict puritanical one at that. He cracked down on the country's morality, shuttered theaters and brothels, demanded that everyone go to church and stay sober, and even canceled Christmas. For the common people, life wasn't any better under a king masquerading as a Lord Protector. When Cromwell died in 1660, one of those monuments of superstition and idolatry, a crown, was placed on his coffin. Rather than bow to Cromwell's uncharismatic son Richard, who, like a king, had been appointed Lord Protector after his father, the people decided they'd just as well have the real thing back. So they invited King Charles I's son to become King Charles II. The new king was thrilled to have his father's throne back, but the royal coffers were empty, so he didn't have any splendid ancient crowns or jewels to adorn himself with. Only four items from the medieval collection survived Cromwell's meltdown and were returned to the king. They were a silver gilt anointing spoon from the 12th century reign of King Henry II, which is the oldest piece in the modern collection and the Three Swords of Spiritual Justice, Temporal Justice, and Mercy from the reign of King James I. In order to curry favor with the new King of England, the Dutch ambassador and other royals and nobles who had purchased pieces from Cromwell returned what gemstones could be found, but no other complete pieces were recovered. From these, plus an additional 12,184 pounds, seven shillings, and tuppence, the royal goldsmith created a new set of crown jewels, which were fashioned to look as much like the medieval set as anyone could remember. There was a new St. Edward's crown, two scepters, an orb, an ampulla to hold holy anointing oil, a pair of spurs, a pair of arm mills, and a walking stick. 
all of which were used in the coronation of King Charles II in 1661. He also purchased or was presented with several pieces of altar and banqueting plate, all of which form the core of the modern crown jewel collection. After the coronation, the new crown jewels were locked in a cupboard in the Tower of London. Tourists could request that the deputy keeper of the jewel house show them this treasure trove for a small fee. Shockingly, one of these tourists, a man called Thomas Blood, hit the 77-year-old deputy on the head and made off with a crown, a scepter, and an orb. When Blood was apprehended by the police a few hours later, the jewels were recovered. The crown had been flattened with a mallet in an attempt to conceal it, and there was a dent in the orb. But the pieces were repaired, and the crown jewels have been kept under state-of-the-art security and 24-hour guard ever since. Many more pieces have been added to the crown jewel collection over the years. In 1685, Mary of Modena, the wife of King James II, was the first queen consort crowned since the Restoration. So a new crown and set of regalia was created for her. When Mary II and William III were crowned joint sovereigns in 1689, no one was sure which of them should wear St. Edward's crown. So they had two new crowns made instead. Subsequent monarchs decided to be crowned with smaller state crowns rather than the extremely heavy, migraine-inducing St. Edward's crown. St. Edward's was placed on a cushion on the altar during those coronations. The Georgian kings were big spenders and often didn't have cash to buy enough diamonds for their crowns. So they would borrow diamonds from the royal jewelers at a 4% fee to be set in their crowns during the coronation. Afterward, the diamonds and jewels would be replaced with glass or paste stones for display in the Tower of London. King George IV was an especially careless spender. He ordered three new crowns for his over-the-top 1821 coronation. Meanwhile, he locked his wife, Caroline of Brunswick, out of the abbey. Luckily, the king was now legally barred from selling off the historic pieces of the crown jewel collection, because King George IV likely would have held a rummage sale to pay off his many gambling debts. By the time of Queen Victoria, the British Empire had enriched itself through colonization and the subjugation of many other countries and people. The diamonds in the crown jewels were real. Many other priceless gemstones were presented and gifted to the British monarchs and were added to the crown jewel collection. These include the many pieces of the Cullinan diamond or Star of Africa and the Kohinoor diamond from India. In 1843, Victoria issued a royal warrant to Gerard and Co, making them the official crown jewelers. They are responsible for maintenance and security of the collection and create any new pieces the royal family requests. In 1911, George V decided to be crowned with that ancient symbol of English kingship, St. Edward's crown. In the lead up to World War I, he was eager to distance himself from his German relatives and associate the monarchy with its ancient British roots. 
During the Second World War, the Tower of London was bombed by the Nazis, and the crown jewels were secretly moved to Windsor Castle. The most valuable gemstones were taken out of their settings, sealed in a biscuit tin, and hidden in the castle's basement. After the war, the jewels were kept in a vault in the Bank of England, while the jewel house, which had been struck by a bomb, was repaired. In 1953, St. Edward's crown was placed on the head of Queen Elizabeth II at her coronation. The imperial state crown is taken out each year for the state opening of parliament. It is usually worn by the sovereign, but in her later years, Queen Elizabeth preferred to keep the heavy headpiece on a pillow rather than on her head. Today, the 142 pieces of the Crown Jewel collection are on permanent display at the Tower of London, where they are seen by 2.5 million visitors each year. They are cleaned each January by Crown Jeweler Mark Appleby, who is also on hand to ensure the jewels are shining their brightest when worn by the royals for special occasions. The crown jewels remain a dazzling and tangible tie between the modern monarchy and their ancient ancestors. They wait quietly for the coronation of the next British monarch, during which they will be used in the only ceremony of its kind left in Europe. In next week's episode, we will look inside the jewel house and take a peek at the individual pieces which comprise the British Crown Jewel collection. These 16 crowns, 6 scepters, 3 robes, 2 orbs, and various other priceless treasures each have a fascinating history and significance, as do many of the spectacular jewels they hold. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I'll be putting out new episodes every Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos, unburying some of my favorite hidden gems, and adding even more fascinating information for your listening pleasure. Want some visuals with your history? Then check out my YouTube channel, History Tea Time with Lindsay Holiday, where you can find hundreds of videos about queens of the world, royal history, women's history, and more. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like Queen's Podcast, Ancient History Fangirl, Redacted History, and more.